0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or, or on your way out of worship today, and that's our gift to you. If you don't know your way around the Bible that well, we've put all the verses that we'll be studying this morning on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want you to just look at this image For just a second, it has been said that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? In the 21st century West, the subject of personal identity is omnipresent and all-pervasive. Things that once were considered to be self-evident, for example, That a boy would grow into a man. That he would marry a woman. That he would become a father and assume his responsibilities as a father. Things that once were self-evident. Now, we are told, include a search for some inner truth. An inner truth about gender identity and sexual orientation. Personal identity, for many people today, has become a DIY project. I am who I feel myself to be on the inside. And by acting in accordance with this impression, I will construct my true self and find long-lost happiness. Ours is an age of identity angst. There is but one place where we can ask this question, who am I, and receive the true answer. In the presence of the God who made us. Identity angst will find peace only when it rests in God's presence and declaration. For the next 12 weeks or so, we'll be studying the book of Ephesians. We'll cover a number of subjects in this study. I'll go ahead and show my cards here. This series will include a bonus episode that deals specifically with the topic of how we as Christians should engage transgender ideologies. So just know that that's coming. I'll probably give you the heads up of when that day is coming. So those of you who want to stay home, you know, you can. That's fine. If you want to wimp out, you can do so. But this is a subject that we as Christians need to learn how to think Christianly about and how to engage. It's one of our core values, right? Local engagement. That means engaging in the people and the various ideologies of our day. So we're going to tackle that subject together. But for about 12 weeks or so, we'll be in the book of Ephesians. Now here at the very beginning of this letter, we learn a few things about it. We learn, first of all, that it was written by Paul. And it was written to the early Christian community in the city of Ephesus. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning he was an eyewitness. He saw the resurrected Jesus. Imagine that. Paul became a great missionary and church planter. He also was a shepherd to various early Christian communities, many churches who were going through different struggles. And Paul himself, of course, had his own struggles. When he wrote this letter, Ephesians, he was in prison. And this was a lighter imprisonment. He was chained to a Roman guard, but he was able to receive visitors and able to receive messages. So at some point, someone must have brought him a message letting him know that the Christians in Ephesus were struggling. They were struggling. And here was their struggle. They were being tempted to assimilate to the culture That they had been converted out of. They had become followers of Christ. But they lived in this massive city called Ephesus. Now you need to know that Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It was a port city. So it was multi-ethnic. It was religiously pluralistic as all cities were in the ancient world. So there were all sorts of people who came... To Ephesus, And these Christians who had become followers of Jesus Christ now were being tempted to embrace certain ideologies. They were inconsistent with their faith. They were being tempted to become like the ungodly world around them. And so Paul writes this letter to remind the Christians who they are, to whom they belong. The purpose of Ephesians is identity formation... Identity formation. No other book of the Bible better summarizes what it means to be a Christian. No other book. And it's amazing how many topics this book addresses that remain hot topics today. Racial reconciliation. Gender. The authority of parents. Spiritual warfare. And the list goes on. Now, Paul accomplishes this purpose of identity formation by using a key phrase over and over and over in the letter. We see it here in the introductory verses. It's this prepositional phrase, in Christ. Sometimes, in Christ Jesus or in Him, always referring to Jesus the Son. Some 30 times in the letter, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ This characterizes everything about us. This is our new way of life, our true identity. We are in Christ. Now, to be in Christ means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the relationship that defines everything about us. To be in Christ means that we are blessed that's the point he'll make in this opening paragraph who am I who are you the identity angst of our age your identity angst will find peace only when it rests in the presence and declaration of God well here in this opening paragraph God via the apostle Paul gives us three declarations telling us who we are so believer believer Here's what I want you to see in this passage this morning. Believer, you are chosen. You are free. And you are marked. You are chosen, you are free, and you are marked. Let's take them one at a time. First, you are chosen. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is sort of the the heading of this whole first paragraph. And what Paul is doing here is he's letting us know this whole paragraph is going to be about the blessings that we, the people of God, enjoy. This is an ascription of praise. Blessed be the God and Father, or praise to the God and Father. Paul is praising God for who He is and all that He has done... For us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now he's going to go on to list what these blessings are, but why do you think he uses this phrase, in the heavenly places? Is Paul saying that we enjoy these blessings only when we get to heaven? Is that the point you think he's making here? These blessings that God has given us are ours, but not really ours yet. They're sort of up there. We can't yet reach them, but we know they're on the horizon. No, I don't think that's the point at all. I think Paul uses this phrase to make an implicit contrast with earthly blessings. You see, earthly blessings, though we tend to pursue them, they're not nearly as good as the blessings in the heavenly places. And here's why. Because earthly blessings are mere earthly blessings. Things like wealth and power and prestige. Sure, it's good to have those things now, so long as they don't have you. But one day they're going to be gone. You enjoy them only here. The blessings that God gives to His people... The blessings that Paul refers to here as blessings in the heavenly places, we enjoy them here and in the hereafter. This is forever stuff. So much better. So what are they? What are these blessings? The first one is in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, verse 4, verse 4 ought to shock you. I mean, it ought to just blow your mind. Believer, before you put your faith in Christ, before you first heard the gospel, before you were born, before your ancestors were born, before all the stories in the Bible that we read together, before the creation of the planet, God chose you. He chose you. How amazing is that? If ever there was a comforting and peace-bringing truth To those of us who struggle with our identity, who am I? Surely this is that truth. God chose you. Now Paul intends for us to just revel in this truth of God's elective love. But we find it hard to do so, don't we? We want to ask questions. Questions like, why did God choose me? Or questions like, what about the people he didn't choose? You see, we want to ask these questions because we don't like mysteries. And there is an element of mystery to God's elective love. But we don't like mysteries. This is why so many people are into conspiracy theories today. We don't like the idea that with all this information in the world, there might be something out there that we don't fully comprehend so people will believe utter nonsense before they will believe that there's just something we don't understand here just something we don't understand a mystery but deuteronomy 29 29 says the secret things belong to the lord our god the secret things there is an element of mystery to god's elective love we don't have questions for all answers to all the questions that we might ask But here's what we do know. We do know that God's choosing of us, it's not arbitrary. It's not like there was some primordial game of duck duck damned up in the heavens. Didn't play out that way. We were talking about this in our family, one of our family discipleship times in my house this week, we were gathered around the dinner table. And if you tracked with the Family Discipleship Guide this week, you'll know that our reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith actually tied into this passage brilliantly. That was not anything we planned. God, in His grace, just did that. And so there I am with my two sons, 13 and 11, and I'm trying to unpack this complicated, mysterious idea of God's elective love. And my 11-year-old son just gets this giant smile on his face, and he looks at me and says, Dad, I know this is not right, but I just got to tell you this image that came to my mind. I'm picturing God's giant top hat. And he just reaches in there and just draws certain names out, and those are the ones that are chosen, right? And we talked through that a little more, and we agreed that that is emphatically not the way it played out. And the reason we know that is because God is not a God of randomness. Just look at creation. He's not a God of randomness, so his choosing of you is not arbitrary. And we also know that his choosing of you is not utilitarian. Meaning, God didn't choose you because of your utility or your usefulness or your goodness. And that's good news. And the reason it's good news is because it means that even on our days when we're not so useful, even on our days when we're not so useful, we remain chosen and cherished by the almighty creator of the universe. It's good news. Now, Paul tells us a little bit more about this doctrine of election in verse 5. He says, "...in love He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or the good pleasure of His will." So, believer, you are chosen according to the good pleasure of God's will. And verse 5 answers the question, chosen to be what? It's great that we're chosen, praise God, but chosen to be what? Chosen to be players on God's team? Workers in His factory? No. Members of His family. Members of His family. In love, he predestined us for adoption. This is the way God thinks of you, believer, as his child. This metaphor of adoption, it brings out the relational aspect of election. You've got to let this sink into your heart, deep down into your heart today. God did not choose you because he wanted something out of you. God chose you simply because He desires you. Simply because He desires you. He loves you as a child. Now, when we hear that, we get it, but we don't fully get it because we are limited by our own familial interactions, right? There's one of me, and I've got two sons. Sometimes both of my sons need me, and at the exact same time. And you know what? I can't be present for both of them. So I have to prioritize in that moment. The one with the more urgent need is the one that gets my help in that moment. But God's not like that. God's not like that. He loves His millions and millions of children, each one as if they were His only child. So you see, believer... All of this means, God's elective, adoptive love, all of it means that there is not a moment of your existence when you can say truthfully, no one loves me. No one cares. No one's listening. You can't say that. Because you are chosen. You are a child of God. That's the first declaration of your identity that we find in this passage. But there's more. There's more. Secondly, you are free. Paul continues to unwrap these blessings, show them to us clearly. Verse 7, in him, there's that phrase again, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and and insight. This word redemption, it means that we have been liberated. We've been set free in the same way that God's people were liberated, set free from their slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament. Slavery is the key, the central image here. In the Greco-Roman world, this word redemption referred to slave trading. It referred to the price that had to be paid in order for a slave to go free. The Bible teaches us that we, once, we were slaves to sin, trapped, held captive by it. And the Son of God paid for our freedom. He paid for our freedom with His own blood. Believer, this is how valuable you are. Hey, listen, I love being your pastor and I love you. And there are a lot of things that I would do for you. But you know what I wouldn't do? I wouldn't give my son for you. I just don't love you that much. It's the truth. Don't you see how much God loves us? Don't you see, He loves us so much more than we love each other? He loves us more than we can imagine that He would give His own Son for you. That's how valuable you are. The death and resurrection of Jesus, it sets us free from the penalty and the power of sin. But also notice in this text, it sets us free from the weight of our guilt. To be redeemed through the blood of Jesus is to be forgiven. Forgiven of our trespasses. This means that you are not defined by your failures. You're not. You will not be remembered for your mistakes. You are in Christ. In relationship with Christ. And that changes everything about who you are you are forgiven. There is no weight of guilt. Look at verse 10. We tend to think of this idea of redemption in a very personal way, and it is. It is. You have been redeemed, believer. But according to verse 10, redemption is cosmic. Not just personal. It involves the whole planet. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, Here Paul is telling us about God's plan that in Jesus Christ one day, one day, he will rid his creation of all sin, all rebellion. See, Ephesians is going to teach us that there is this rupture in creation itself. And that one day when Jesus returns everything will be restored. It's not just that your sin has been dealt with, but one day all sin, all rebellion will be dealt with. All will be united in Jesus Christ. Or in language that Paul uses elsewhere, one day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. So here's what this means for us. We have a a tendency today, we are prone toward pessimism, right? We look at the world and we think, man, what's wrong with people? What's wrong with this place? And we get very pessimistic. Hey, don't let the chaos of the world cause you to lose hope. We cannot be pessimists because we have the promise right here in Scripture that one day Jesus Christ will unite all things. All people, all kings, all nations, all powers on heaven, on earth, and in heaven, all united and bowing before him. See, the world is going somewhere. Despite what you might think, the somewhere is actually a good place because Jesus is Lord. So, believer, you are chosen, and believer, you are free. One final thing I want you to see in this passage. You are also marked. Look at how Paul brings this opening paragraph to a close in verses 13 and 14. In him, there he is again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, don't miss this. See the Trinitarian shape of this opening passage. I want you to see it. God the Father chose you. God the Son purchased your freedom with His own blood. And then here at the end of the passage, God the Holy Spirit seals you. Paul teaches us three things about the Holy Spirit here. He teaches us something about property, power, and a promise. First, the property part. When Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being our seal, he's drawing on some common imagery in the ancient world. Cattle, slaves, they were branded. They were marked externally. It was a way of showing to whom they belonged, the master to whom they belonged. We could say they were sealed. Well, God uses a seal, but his seal is not a brand. It's not an external mark. It's something within, even better, someone within. God puts his own spirit within believers, sealing us, marking us as his property, as people who belong to him. And that can never be taken away from us. Come what may. Now he also teaches us something about power here. This is only implicit in the passage, but it's worth bringing out. This Holy Spirit who seals us, who lives within us, is a person. This is not some nebulous force. This is a person, and it's a powerful person. It's God himself. God, the Holy Spirit, lives within you, and that means you have access to a new power. God's own power. That means that there is no sin that you cannot overcome. There is no addiction that you cannot overcome because you possess the power of God. Or even better, the all-powerful God possesses you. So we see something here about power. And then finally, We learn something about a promise. Notice that the Spirit is not only our seal, the Spirit is also our guarantee of an inheritance. Now this is a really interesting term that Paul uses here. It's basically the word for down payment. Down payment. So when you go to buy your home, you provide a down payment, right? And what is it? It's the first installment of the final purchase price. Paul is teaching us that the Holy Spirit is the first installment of our final inheritance. He is the promise that what lies ahead for us as believers is just more and more blessing. Even greater things are coming to us because we are God's people. Remember that as you look around the world... As you're tempted to become like the culture around you, or as you're tempted to just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I've had enough. Remember, the power of the Spirit is within you. I want you to think one final time about the Trinitarian shape of this passage. And I want you to see how each member of the Trinity is shaping you, defining you, Believer, God the Father chose you. God the Son purchased you with His own blood. And God the Spirit seals you, marks you as gods. This, despite what the world and the people around you say, this is your true identity. Rest in it rest in it. Let's pray. Oh God, your word is so good. And these three declarations this morning of who we are as we stand in your presence, now there could be nothing more comforting. My guess is that each one of us has moments in our life where we feel lonely, lonely, unloved, unheard, unnoticed. We feel like some speck clinging for dear life on this planet. But our feelings can deceive us. Our feelings are not our authority. Your word is. And we've seen this day so clearly in your word that we are loved. Every moment of every day, long before we were born, long before there was an earth, you chose us to be the objects of your love. You chose us not because you wanted something out of us, simply because you wanted us. God, I ask you to work this truth deep down in our hearts today.